0: My name is Paola Gaeta and I'm a Professor of International Law at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. This class of today, this lecture of today, deals with the foundational principles of International Criminal Law, that is a branch of public international law dealing with the principle of criminal responsibility of individuals under international law for crimes, that are committed under international law. Therefore, international criminal law can be seen as an exception to the traditional principle according to which individuals are not subjects of international law and therefore they don't have responsibility for carrying out conducts that are contrary to international law. The international law of debate concerning the scope of criminal responsibility for crimes under international law currently relates to the possibility to expand the principle of criminal responsibility to legal persons, namely to entities that have legal personality under domestic law. However, a final decision on the matter has not been reached, not at the level of treaty law, nor at the level of customary international law. Having said so, all individuals may be criminally responsible for crimes under international law, including senior state officials, businessmen and other private individuals. Concerning the birth of international criminal law, this is usually referred back to the establishment of the Nuremberg Tribunal which was created by Soviet Union, United States, UK and France to prosecute in the aftermath of the Second World War Nazi war criminals. The Nuremberg Tribunal was created by the London Charter which was enacted in 1945 and tried indeed a group of people who were representing Nazi Germany, um, The London Charter also was the basis for the establishment of a sister tribunal, the so-called Tokyo Tribunal, namely the International Military Tribunal for the Far, West, Far, Far East that prosecuted uh, representatives of Japan as an ally of Nazi Germany. General Assembly Resolution 95, adopted on 11 December 1946, affirmed the principles of international law enshrined in the charter of the Nuremberg Tribunal and in the judgment of the Nuremberg Tribunal. And therefore, this resolution set in motion the process for turning the so-called Nuremberg principles into rules of customary international law. Let's therefore now examine briefly the main principles, the Nuremberg Principles, that can be considered the core principles, the foundational principles of international criminal law. The first principle is the principle whereby individual criminal responsibility would stem from any act that constitutes a crime under international law. And this principle has been expressed by a famous passage of the judgment of the Nuremberg Tribunal, which reads as follows. Crimes against international law are committed by men, not by abstract entities. And only by punishing individuals who commit such crimes can the provisions of international law be enforced. The main corollary corollary of this principle is therefore that individuals can be punished for crimes under international law, even absent a municipal legislation criminalizing such conduct at the time when the conduct took place, to the extent, of course, that the conduct was criminalized by international law. This principle therefore sets forth the supremacy of international law over municipal law in the field of crimes under international law. The second principle, uh, that is considered to be the foundational principle of international criminal law, is the one that establishes the irrelevance of having acted in an official capacity as a head of a state, head of a government, or other governmental representatives for the ascription of criminal responsibility for crimes under international law. The logic behind this principle, which was included in Article 7 of the London Charter of the Nuremberg Tribunal, was forcibly set out by Justice Robert Jackson, who was the Chief United States Prosecutor at the Nuremberg Trials. He said that No one can recognize such a defense as the obsolete doctrine that a head of state is immune from legal liability for crimes under international law. This doctrine is inconsistent with the position we take toward our own officials who are frequently brought to court at the suit of citizens who allege their rights to have been invaded." And he continued. We do not accept the paradox that legal responsibility should be the least where power is the greatest. So, the main corollary of this principle is that jurisdictional immunities under international law that protect foreign state officials for acts that they accomplish in the exercise of their functions, what we call functional international immunities or act-based international immunities, well, these jurisdictional immunities are not available in the case of charges of crimes under international law. And this unavailability would also apply with respect to high-level state officials, such as heads of states or heads of governments. The functional immunities, however, shall be distinguished from the so-called personal or diplomatic immunities that also apply under international law, but to shield certain categories of state officials while they have their position, while they hold post, for the fact of representing states in international relations. These personal immunities accrue, for instance, to serving heads of states, serving heads of government, serving ministers for foreign affairs, as well as to serving diplomats. Now, these personal immunities are absolute in the sense that they protect the relevant state official until he or she holds the post for any act whatsoever, including of a private nature, committed even prior to acquiring the position. These personal immunities are considered to be absolute even in the case of charges of international crimes. This has been clarified by the International Court of Justice in a famous case, the Arrest Warrant case, which concerned the allegations brought by Belgian judges against, at the time, the Acting Minister for Foreign Affairs of the Democratic Republic of Congo for serious crimes such as crimes against humanity and war crimes. The Belgian authorities had issued an international arrest warrant against the serving Acting Minister for Foreign Affairs of the Democratic Republic of Congo. An international dispute was therefore borrowed before the International Court of Justice, where the Democratic Republic of Congo claimed that the Belgian uh, issuance of the International Arrest Warrant was a violation of the personal immunities accruing to a serving Minister for Foreign Affairs. The International Court of Justice upheld the position of the Democratic Republic of Congo, claiming that there is, apparently, no derogation to the customary rules on personal immunities accruing to these categories of state officials representing the states at the highest level. The third principle, that is one of the foundational principles of international criminal law, is the fact that Having acted in obedience to the order of a superior or of a government does not relieve an individual for criminal responsibility in the case of crimes under international law. The rationale of this principle, which is also expressed in the London Charter establishing the Nuremberg Tribunal, becomes clear if one considers that crimes under international law, such as war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide or crimes against peace, are usually committed in the context of what one can term state criminality. Namely, these crimes are committed by individuals, often state officials, with the support of the apparatus of a state and in accordance with a state policy. Therefore, if one should recognize the availability of the criminal defense of having acted in obedience to an order of a superior or the order of a government, then it would be impossible to ascribe criminal responsibility to the subordinates, to the laymen. And therefore, this would make only those in the apex of the state apparatus, at the apex of the state apparatus, be criminally liable for crimes under international law. Therefore, like the principle of irrelevance of official capacity, the principle of the unavailability of the defence of superior order is at the core of the fabric of international criminal law and ensures that every individual, also foot soldiers, who carry out crimes under international law are punishable The main corollary is therefore that any national criminal rule that would allow the defense of obedience to superior order to be applied would be contrary to this main principle of international criminal law. However, this is rarely the case, since in most national jurisdictions when the defense of superior order is available, at the same time it is also made conditional upon the fact that the order is not manifestly unlawful, and since the order to commit a crime against international law, under international law, such as genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and so on, is often manifestly unlawful, this defense is usually not available. Article 33, paragraph 2 of the Rome Statute, establishing the International Criminal Court, that regulates the defense of superior order in criminal proceedings before the International Criminal Court, recognizes that crimes against humanity and genocide, if are ordered to be committed, are manifestly criminal. By doing so, therefore, the Rome statute of the International Criminal Court rules out the legge lata, the defense at stake, but only with respect to crimes against humanity and genocide. It does not, in fact, recognize the manifest criminality for other crimes under the jurisdiction of the Court, namely war crimes and aggression, that therefore would make the defense of superior order available if all the other conditions for the availability of the defense are met. So let me now move to the subsequent developments, and we will see that international criminal law has faced a so-called dormant phase since the establishment of the Nuremberg Tribunal and the affirmation of the Nuremberg Principles by the General Assembly. This dormant phase has continued until the end of the Cold War. It happened that the supporters of the so-called Orthodox approach international law, therefore those who believed that international law does not address the conducts of individuals, which therefore cannot be responsible for violating international law, they managed to influence the drafting of treaties in the field of crimes under international law. And at the same time, they were preventing from establishing a permanent international criminal court whose establishment was discussed since Gustave Manier, uh, here in Geneva, first for the first time suggested the establishment of this International Criminal Court, and this was 1864. So when it comes to the treaties that were adopted for guaranteeing the punishment of crimes under international law, we could see that these treaties did not provide for the individual criminal responsibility of individuals directly under international law, but these treaties conferred upon state parties the obligation to criminalize such acts under their municipal law. Therefore, the principle was established that it was for states to prosecute international crimes, and individuals were subject to their municipal law. The prominent example can be found in the 1949 Four Geneva Conventions for the protections of the victims of warfare. In these Geneva Conventions, there are certain penal provisions, namely provisions which exactly establishes which serious violations of the Geneva Conventions, that are termed grave breaches, entail criminal responsibility of individuals. However, the list of grave breaches does not provide at the same time the principle of direct criminal responsibility under international law of individuals. On the contrary, states acquire under the Geneva Convention the obligation to pass relevant municipal criminal legislation to provide for the most effective penalties against those responsible for such grave breaches and also they obliged themselves to bring them before their own courts. As you will see, therefore, in the Geneva Conventions of 1949, those grave breaches were not even called war crimes, because the term crime was considered to be unsuitable for a treaty dealing with international matters, on the premise that crimes were only a matter of domestic law. Another example, is given by, for instance, the Genocide Convention, which was adopted one year before, namely in 1948. In this respect, again, states obliged themselves to criminalize genocide, as defined in the Genocide Convention within their municipal legislation, but they didn't establish a court at an international level to prosecute persons responsible for genocide, but they envisaged the obligation for the state where genocide had been committed, namely the territorial state, to punish persons responsible for acts of genocide. However, this phase, as I said, came to an end with the end of the Cold War. In particular, the establishment by the UN Security Council of two ad hoc tribunals, criminal tribunals, namely the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, paved the way to a new era of international criminal law, asserting the principle of individual criminal responsibility for the first time before two truly international criminal tribunals. These tribunals were set up to prosecute and punish persons responsible for genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, namely the so-called war crimes, committed respectively in the territory of the former Yugoslavia and in the territory of Rwanda. The creation of these two ad hoc criminal tribunals paved the way to the adoption of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court in 1998, which is the first permanent international criminal court ever created in the history of mankind. Also, the creation of these ad hoc tribunals and of the International Criminal Court paved the way to the establishment of a group of so-called mixed or hybrid criminal tribunals for the prosecution and punishment of crimes committed in certain countries, some of them having a strong international component, such as the case of the Special Court for Sierra Leone. All these international and mixed criminal tribunals exercise, or have exercised, their jurisdiction over individuals accused of international crimes on the basis of rules of truly international nature. So, those rules were provided in their respective constitutive instruments, their statutes, they described the prohibited conduct, they indicated the criteria that the tribunal would have to apply for sentencing, and in addition, They were supplemented by other international rules, customary rules, and by general principles common to national legal orders. These international and hybrid and mixed courts have spawned a copious case law, thus contributing to the emergence of new international customary rules, supplementing those already existing. And finally, and more importantly, they are functioning, although not flawless, has contributed to disseminating the idea that there are criminal conducts under international law that cannot go unpunished and that individuals responsible for them must be brought to justice. Therefore, they created a culture of the fight against impunity. Therefore, the international community now enforces its criminal prohibitions through international and hybrid international courts and tribunals which apply international criminal rules directly. Briefly, with regard to crimes under international law, the right to punish, namely the jus puniendi, has ceased to be an exclusive prerogative of sovereign states and is exercised at an international level by this international judicial body on behalf of the international community as a whole. In the field of crimes or under international law, In other words, there now exists a branch of public international law that comprises a truly international criminal law.